0: Hello!
1: You are listening to a Film Stage Show special episode. Um, I am here with uh, fellow Chicago critic uh, Max O'Connell. Hi. And we're here to talk about the Chicago International Film Festival. Uh, You may remember that we did this last year, and uh, we we got a really good response on it. So we're back to kind of talk about Uh, Some of the bigger festival things, things that are coming out uh, later this year, things that are coming out early next year. So you can be that insufferable person who is already talking about the best movies of next year. (laughs) You can be just like us. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, uh, first up, Max and I saw a lot of movies. Uh, Max being the overachiever that he is had to see over 20 films and uh, I saw a dozen films so but first of all we kind of want to talk about the few that we saw in common before we uh, get into it and um, you know what why don't we just start with the most challenging one to discuss Max let's do it. <laughs> So both of our uh, favorite film f- – excuse me. Both of our uh, – the film that was the favorite for both of us, words are hard, is uh, the latest film from uh, global auteur, uh Pedro Costa, and that is called uh, Vitalina Varela. Um, so to kind of start, Max, uh, do you have any experience with uh, Costa?
0: Very little, and I was uh, slightly aware um, that his films have a reputation for being forbidding. I had only seen his first film, uh, Osos, which I oh no, sorry, uh, Osong rather, uh, which I liked very much. But um, my understanding was that uh, he grew more challenging uh, as you know as he progressed uh, as a stylist. Um, so I wasn't really sure what to expect with uh, Vitalina Varilla, But uh, yeah, as you. Mentioned we both uh, were kind of swept up in it.
1: Yeah, it's uh, – like you, I, I, I've i had minimal experience with uh, Costa. I saw an earlier film um, – oh my gosh, that I'm not going to be able to remember – and Horse Money, which is a more recent film that – it has vague <laughs> similarities with Vitalina Varela, but Vitalina Varela – it, like horse money. It is a film that requires complete commitment to its to its aesthetic. I, I mean, the the title itself is the name of a person, uh, a an older woman who has lost uh, her husband, and she returns to uh, Lisbon, Portugal. After her husband, who who left her years earlier, um, dies, and that is basically the entire film the the sense of ceremony and her mourning um, after her husband passes. I, I I feel like I could get more into the aesthetic
0: things, but. I mean, Max, what are your What are your first thoughts about this? Well, there wasn't really a moment, and this is not a... People who are more familiar with Costa probably um, have, have told me a few times that he has a very deliberate pace. Like, he is going to make you sit with every moment of it. But there wasn't really a moment where I wasn't mesmerized by it. I mean, it, it just has a very... Um, Absorbing patience to it that like, ask you to sit with these people, um, with these uh, people who are in in you know, conditions of abject poverty and are uh, mourning and are not always having the easiest time mourning. I mean, the interesting thing about um, Vitalina Varela as a character is that she still harbors a lot of you know pain um, because of her you know her history with her husband, and um, the film deals with that. Uh, you know the, the difficulty of addressing that and also missing someone um, simultaneously in in a really interesting way all while uh, you know playing with you know shadows and light and all these things uh, in a pretty gorgeous uh, fashion
1: yeah the the cinematography here is is spectacular and the way that him him and his uh, DP who I'd be remiss not to mention. <laughs> um his uh dp in this case is uh, Leonardo Simos and the the ways that they're able to refract light and play with uh the mise-en-scène and, and and the um blocking of these these characters is it's you know it's it's almost oppressive there's barely a moment when it gives you a respite from this like just overwhelming atmosphere. But it, it, again, as Max says, like there's a, there's a really absorbing patience to it. Like at at first it, it is difficult to uh, adjust to watching, for instance, how Vitalina moves. Like she'll like uh, the, the frame will be entirely, Taken by her face, and and you'll see every inflection. But it's, but, but it's so, uh, it, it's so majestic. Even as obviously as as Max was saying, like it is also reflecting this uh, this underworld that exists in the in the um, like in a space that looks both alien and totally real. I I, like, for instance, it's, it's really, um, it's really difficult to explain (laughs) as I'm finding um, to a number of people who I've talked about this film. I I mean, it's really an experience that I, I I can't, um, I can't recommend enough to people. And you know, there were definitely some people who didn't vibe with it. There were a few walkouts at the screening that uh, Max and I were at. But just in terms of – there are so few auteurs these days that really give you such a such a full and uncompromising <laughs> experience the, the way this did. And, you know, it's I, – I guess the last thing I can say about it is it's not just the aesthetic, but – so much of the dialogue is these, uh, this enigmatic uh, mantras and uh, prayers and, in uh, almost like uh, parabolic, um, yeah, I I, 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 there's just there's such a sense of illusion and uh, uh, culture and. I, I I can't help but think that some of it might have gone over my
0: head, but yeah, Sam, uh, truly a singular experience. And it, it also like it, the people in it are, are such fascinating presences. But there's also like the just the non-presence of of the husband character. Like um, I, we we talked I think briefly at this after the screening where you mentioned how much it captures just that feeling of of like knowing like someone like who was important like was there. Uh and like how they haven't completely moved on and they're still kind of dealing with feelings that they have about him um while like being aware that of his very recent absence.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely a film I feel like haunted is yes. the film that's thrown around a lot. And man, it is really, really true here. And also in in an amazing uh, thing that you, you found, Max. Apparently, uh, he this global auteur who's like known by you know many of the most highfalutin critics as you know one of the best filmmakers in the world was apparently very influenced by Insidious of all things <laughs> in, in I can't how stand. he framed this film. <laughs> I mean, on some level, you can see that. I mean, yeah. It, there are no jump scares in this movie, but you know, that's not to say that demons aren't in this movie.
0: Yeah, uh, um, yeah. I, I, far be it for me to beat up on on like a, a, an author taking uh, pleasures and possible influence from. Um, <laughs> a horror movie I don't like. I I love horror movies, but, um, yeah, uh, (laughs) I, I can't say I'm going to go back to insidious and look for, uh, the things that like, ah, yes, this is what Costa was drawing from. (laughs) I,
1: I feel like to, um, you know, this is, this is damning it with faint praise or potentially, yeah. Damning it with faint praise in the instance that we also both saw, uh, Oliver Lax's uh, Fire will come which I think after we were both spellbound by but the only problem <laughs> was it was overshadowed by Vitalina Vrella literally the, <laughs> the next night but it's yeah. really it's, it's really a, a wonderful film. Um, it, it's about a uh, I, I was about to describe it the log line and and I was like, is this a spoiler? <laughs> and and no, it's it's not really a spoiler. It's about a arsonist who has been re- released from prison and uh is accused of causing a, a new a, a new fire. and um it it is really only for the first forty five minutes it's really about this former uh former arsonist and his mother and it's I mean it is on some level a formal exercise but I was also just kind of taken with how textured of an experience it is and uh, the ways in which it uh It finds ways of amplifying its own metaphor, Um, and I. I, And finally, what I want to say is like it's you know at at times it it reminded me of you know a Kelly Reichard if she was less interested in process, or uh, you know Uncle Boonmee's Joe and the way the like the landscapes are they're just constantly blanketed in this natural phenomena that still looks alien. But the thing that honestly I'm coming back to over and over again is the lead, uh, Arius Amador, who is so expressively plain. Like he tells more, um, in his just kind of resting weathered face than any expression. Like it, it's, he like, on some level, he's a cipher, but he's also so mesmerizing to watch in a way that's not about, like, it being a puzzle, but in a way that you just feel at peace with these characters. Um, and then it becomes something else that I don't really want to spoil, and it just becomes a thrilling, <laughs> exhilarating experience.
0: Um Max, what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, I mean, we're on the same page uh, on this film. I mean, you said expressively plain. I I think my words were expressively inexpressive. Like he's someone who <laughs> yes. reveals very little, but like the way he reveals very little tells you a lot about who he is and um, you know what he's dealing with. I mean, it's it's interesting because he was he's he's definitely been convicted of arson. I'm not sure. I don't recall whether or not it's conclusive about whether he started um, the, the one that he went to prison for. And it's interesting because like there is this kind of just oddness and like nobody really knows how to treat him where there are villagers who will let's say try to be nice and pull him on to like a um, – there's a subplot involving characters who are renovating this space and turning going to turn it into like – I think it's something like an Airbnb um, yes. If Yeah. And, you know, he he and his mother um, are both seem not t- entirely thrilled uh, with that idea, but um, they kind of re- remain at a polite distance while, um, you know, he's being invited. But he also uh, just doesn't doesn't um, seem to put people at ease and when he does meet someone who seems unaware of who he is there is like a, a noticeable lightness in it that uh, you know shifts uh, a little later in the film uh, it, it's it's interesting because it has this fantastic mythic opening and ending um, and in between is just the most Quotidian thing where like it, it is pretty much all day-to-day stuff of him on a farm with his mother, like trying to get cow like a cow that's out of uh, like that got stuck in a in like a little pond uh, out of it, or um, you know cleaning a uh, drain, uh, 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 yeah, cleaning cleaning a drain for, of moss and things like that. And it just sure. it's kind of fascinating how it um, concerns itself with. the 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 need to do normal things and the the, um, just you're trying to get back to normal while this thing hangs over you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and then on either end, there's these fantastic, um, we we don't want to talk too much about the ending, but I I think the opening is worth talking about because it's uh, maybe my favorite opening to any movie of the year where, you see this light going through um, these trees, and it's this very just unearthly glow. And it gradually becomes clear what the light is and what its relation uh, to the trees is. And it, it's kind of uh, both gorgeous and a little bit uh, horrifying to uh, witness. Um, and I don't know. It, it just it's this very elemental opening that. Um, you, I mean, you talked about a peachapong and uh, Reichert and some of the things, and I, I do True. see both of those. But I, I mentioned, uh, like, it made me think of uh, some of Werner Herzog's. Uh, yes, lore, yes. Um, like specifically Aguirre and and Fitzcarraldo.
1: Yeah, th- there is definitely that sense of. I-, I think what's interesting, though, about Fitzcarraldo, you know, Fitzcarraldo and uh, Aguirre are, you know, they're also very much thematically about. That effort, yes. But this doesn't really have that effort. Like the mythicism seems like it would be happening <laughs> without the camera being there. If if right. that makes if that makes sense.
0: Like it's very much about like this um, these grand events that are bookending this character's life, uh, which is otherwise rather rather plain. Yeah. And. No, I, uh, you no, know, that being that being interrupted is kind of the the central uh, thrust of I think the last. Well, what happens uh, in the end, which is, um, you know, uh, like like I said about the, the opening, uh, both horrifying and kind of gorgeous to behold.
1: Yes, yeah, it's it, it's yeah, it it really is a film that wants to leave you uh, short of breath and, and like it might not make. I, I found it very interesting. The last thing I want to say is that you know on on some level, it complicates its own metaphor and the easiness of you know, telling a story of an arsonist and you know there's there's a very easy metaphor, and it's it's not just the ambiguity, but it, it's a sense of just um. Yeah, it's it's the Quadodian that you're talking about that uh, that doesn't make it sentimental. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't make that conflict uh, central. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. Um, I,
1: I think another another film that we both saw. Uh, it's definitely one that snuck up on me is. Uh, is uh, a film that we both had heard a little bit about, uh, and it's uh, Damien Manavel's Isadora's Children. Um, Do you want to give a synopsis for this one, Max?
0: Sure. Um, So the film opens with the description of uh, Isadora Duncan, the uh, famed dancer, um, uh, and how she created a solo dance work called Mother, in which a mother uh, cradles her child in a moment of tenderness and let, then lets it go. And this was inspired by uh, Duncan losing her own uh, children in, I think it was an accident. Um, yeah. Car and crash. Yes. Yeah. That's in right. The, in the same Yeah. Um, uh, and the, um, the film jumps to, well, uh, present day and deals with how different women encounter this dance where, um, well, one is a uh, one, one is a dancer, another is a choreographer, and um, one is a uh, audience member who witnesses a reproduction of the dance. And um, yeah, I, I, I'd say snuck up on me is a, is a, is a good way to describe it. I wasn't quite sure what to make of it for the first twenty minutes um, or so, but uh, with each segment following a different. Person in their relation to the dance, it uh, kind of built up this uh, really quiet power uh, um, in how it looks at how different people try to, well, what pe- different people channel into art, what different people get out of art, how art um, helps us process things that we've gone through ourselves. Um, yeah, I, I think I was really impressed.
1: Yeah. Maneville is not someone I'd I'd previously heard of, but I was just kind of uh, amazed with their sense of sense of control. Uh, The editing in this film, I I thought, was really uh, pitch perfect. Like when each vignette, I I guess vignette works when each vignette ends, um, just is, you know, it, it it leaves you. It's that perfect. A combination of leaving you wanting more, but also feeling like, uh, you know, the chapter ends. And I, I think as well, you know, that first – the first subject is – I like the way we're just watching her and she's, you know, in the library and studying Isadora Duncan and, yep. uh, you know, looking at the steps as they're which I'd never actually seen a dance <laughs> written out, so that was actually – Fascinating on a a personal level for me, Mm -hmm. but, um, I I think it was the, the second segment that especially just kind of, um, it it reminded me, um, you know, you know, we talk so much these days in terms of performance. There's so many films, uh, that are, are, you know, not only are they physically performances, but they're. About that idea of performance, living a life where you're going through a routine, whether you're going through a cycle. And I think having this detached but empathetic view of um, these subjects is just like it's it's just the it's the perfect way to to approach this in a way that feels, you know, at once again academic but also there's there's a warmth to it and you know I I think that's really really difficult. You get a lot of detached filmmakers these days. You get a lot of warm filmmakers these days, but you you rarely see someone pull that off without, you know, bringing attention to it. Yeah, I
0: no, I, okay. I, I see what you mean I um you know uh, Manvel uh, just has a very distinct sensibility and um I don't know i'm I'm kind of glad to have encountered him I'm very curious to see what he does next
1: yeah it, it seems like he's been on the festival circuit for a bit um i i should uh, I should mention i I saw um, specifically Elena Lazic, who I, I think is a really uh, lovely writer. She interviewed him for seventh row, which is uh, the film stage show. Listeners might know seventh row as the, uh, brainchild of Alex Heaney, who we've had on, uh, who's at this point, a regular guest, uh, on the show. So, um, just wanted to mention them and, uh, that lovely interview. Um, and, uh, finally, uh, To mention something that we split on a little bit, Max, I know you didn't have a lot to say about this one, but it was uh, Levan Akin's And Then We Danced, which is about a – it's about a Georgian uh, ensemble where uh, a young closeted man named uh, Merab. Uh, kind of falls, kind of has his first love with a a new arriving member of the Georgian Ensemble. So it's, I mean, speaking of performance, it's definitely a film that more explicitly embeds the idea that uh, Merab has had to play a role his, his whole life. Um, I wasn't, I, I didn't think this was a great film by any stretch, but I I will say that I seem to be more taken I, – I, I really felt like the backdrop, backdrop felt pretty uh, ingrained. And I, I thought the lead in expressing a certain blankness was like uh, – you know, it was – was pretty good um, I, I, th- I thought the shape was far too familiar but I, I think I'm probably also just disposed to uh, films about um, queer at first love like that they're just something I generally take to uh, specifically in the realm of uh, a performance or you know being someone that uh, you're not. Um, so, I, I mean, Max, I, I, I'd love to hear kind of your counterpoint a little bit. Uh, <laughs>
0: um, I, I think it's well expressed. Um, you mentioned that the shape is a little familiar, uh, that I think is ultimately what I seized on. Um, aside from the backdrop, I just, there was nothing about this film that surprised me. There was nothing that really, um, grabbed me, um, I, I just like I, I don't have a lot to say outside of like it just did not raise my pulse at all <laughs> except in the points where the part where the abba song showed up and the part where the robin song showed up okay it's, that's, it's that's like, fair enough it's I, I think the um the environment is the most interesting thing about it and that really isn't enough to hang your hat on for me
1: yeah no that's that's totally fair um and now we're going to kind of get into uh, get into uh, our own uh, individual films. Max, the, the two films that are, are there's two films by uh, one director who you seem to be really fond of and uh, had quite a bit of hype coming in. I, I think they played originally at TIFF or, or Cannes. I'm not quite sure, but uh, what can you tell me about La Llorona and Tremors?
0: Uh, well, uh, La Llorona and Tremors are both by uh, Guatemalan director Jairo Bustamante. Um, he previously had a film that I think got a f- fair amount of attention, Ix Canul, uh, that was back in 2015. Um, and they're Two very different films that I uh, (laughs) can still see are are from the, uh, definitely from the same person. Uh, I'll go with La Girona first because it's the first one I saw and it's the one I slightly prefer. Um, The film, it takes place in this uh, rich, uh, the the home of this rich Guatemalan family and um, the house has some sort of a, disturbance going through it. Um, well, I mean, it, it's being haunted and it becomes clear fairly early on that the family that is being haunted, uh, their patriarch was a general in the middle of the Guatemalan genocide and was uh, heavily involved, uh, in its, uh, you know, in, in a specific massacre. So it has a very interesting thing where it, for a while, at very least, plays as this straightforward drama about um, these people who are this family that is kind of at different points where um, the wife uh, of, of the man is uh, remaining loyal to him as he's on trial for uh, involvement in genocide. Um, his daughter, um seems a little more wary of like what he might've actually been up to. Um, his granddaughter seems sort of unaware outside of like the fact that everyone really hates him and there are protests and, you know, uh, things being thrown at their windows. Um, (laughs) and like, and then suddenly a maid shows up who, um, seems a little bit off and may have some sort of a connection to, uh, the, uh, uh, well uh, the man's victims and it does this really interesting thing where it makes you understand how reprehensible people justify themselves without uh, letting you without like put, put, putting out of mind the uh, the harm they've caused because I mean it introduces this guy um, as someone who, is like infirm. He's very old. He's, um, possibly dealing with dementia and, um, you know, and his wife is also, you know, uh, justifying like whatever he might have done as like, you know, they were communists, they were against our country so on and so forth. Um, like it, it finds a way to give them their space to kind of hang themselves with their own rope while also, um, you know, uh, showing them as, as people, um, you know, I, I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say is that it shows them as people without um, denying that they're also monsters. And also, uh, you know, it's it's a really entertaining horror movie all, all the same. Um, you gradually see things just get more unhinged as uh, certain family members start to realize that uh, something is up. Uh, and it is kind of a fascinating thing where the, the haunted th- – The person who is being most haunted is a terrible person, and the person who first notices that something is up is that terrible person. It's just kind of an interesting dynamic.
1: Okay, And I I mean, is this – the kind of horrors that you're speaking of, are are they explicitly depicted? I mean, how does it kind of contextualize that history for someone who potentially isn't uh,
0: familiar with it? So – it introduces the family before showing you that the um the general is on trial, and it becomes clear that it is uh, you know it is uh, because of you know his role in genocide. And um, it also very sparingly throws in dream sequences in which certain people's roles uh, in said genocide are being kind of scrambled or blended in an interesting way. Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, it's uh, this is definitely one I, I've heard a lot about uh, o- over the year uh, on the festival circuit, and yeah, it's, it's it's very impressive nonetheless that he has two films on, on the circuit. the The other one then is uh, Tremors, which, as I understand, as you were kind of explaining is entirely different. (laughs) Is
0: that correct? Um, I mean, certainly in in story, um, it does similarly deal with, um, you know, uh, certain right wing elements in Guatemala. But in this case, it's, um, it introduces a man who, he arrives home and his family is having an intervention because they found out that he's a closeted uh, gay man. And uh, it's, you know, it's his, uh, his extended family. It's his wife. Like they're all, Horrified, And um, he it, it shows him torn between his lover and, uh, you know, his feeling of duty to his family and his desire to be able to see his children because uh, his wife is uh, not allowing him to, to see them. Um, and it gr- it becomes to some degree a drama about conversion therapy, but in a way that doesn't feel exploitative and. Um, in fact, I, I, the connecting the connective tissue between these two films, aside from again, um, in Tremors, you g- uh, get to see these people kind of express themselves in a way that shows I, I don't know shows them justifying how they think without um, uh, writing off how how damaging they are. But um, there's also just this very measured um, pace and and uh, style to it that. Uh, you know, makes the breaks from reality in La Girona or the um, I I don't want to give too much away, but there are certain um, elements that figure in in Tremors that uh, feel far uh, more impactful because that uh, the the rest of the film is is so uh, measured.
1: So is it? Is it kind of more of a thriller? Is it a chamber drama? Like uh, uh, no, tr- just chamber, a little chamber bit of drama. Sorry,
0: chamber drama is is a better way to describe Tremors. Yeah.
1: Okay, and um, I I just want to get a little bit of a sense. So is so is homosexuality a crime within the milieu uh, of the film? Like, is this something he could be arrested for, or or is it mostly just that family? Fallout. That's the,
0: you know, that's a good question. I I don't recall that he faces any um, you know uh, legal peril. I, I think it's more just a matter of um, ostracization, um, you know, uh, certain stigma, and uh, yeah, uh, potentially losing um, the ability to communicate and spend time with his children.
1: You know, to kind of switch directions a little bit uh we both watched uh a a few documentaries um so i wanted to i'll I'll briefly talk about uh or or, oh i guess i have two (laughs) um so the two documentaries that i i managed to see over the festival was uh one was called uh seahorse and it certainly has a um it has an immediately grabbing uh, logline it's about a uh, transgender man who um decides that he wants to conceive a child and um what i what what i like about this this film is you know it it it's kind of constantly <laughs> Uh, wrestling with all of these things that the that the subject doesn't know. Uh, his name's Freddie McConnell, and um, he's kind of constantly figuring out how much more difficult a pregnancy is than uh, than he thought it was going to be. Um, so there's there's a really fascinating. Allegorical thing in the sense that you know this is a trans man who you know has struggled uh, with being placed in the wrong gender for so much of their life, and yet now has to come completely in contact with a an action that uh, completely you know nullifies their their own gender, mm-hmm. um, and, and and I. I kind of love that, you know, not only does it have those interesting bits about, you know, a, about what the logistics are for a trans man to conceive not and not in a, a leering way, but really in um, a, a very grounded way. Uh, personal way. I I, I mean, there are numerous scenes where you're just seeing, um, him try to, uh, you know, take pregnancy tests or, uh, trying to get, uh, hormones in, or excuse me. Yes. To get, yes, to get hormones, um, in, in a way to be able to birth a child. And there's, uh, another complex subplot with a partner, that's, uh, done in a really wonderful way. I I think ultimately it's a little bit, um, as a documentary, it's never quite essential beyond the subject, but I really found it, um, very charming and, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it definitely dispelled a lot of misconceptions I, I had uh, about this, which I, I know that's probably a, a bad thing to admit, but um, I definitely learned a lot uh, watching this. And um, again, far from an expert on uh, trans issues and um, the like, but I, I was really glad that I had a chance to see this one Um uh, Max, did you heard anything about this one or? Uh, no,
0: not not very much. Um, uh, you, you said um, stylistically, it's not particularly memorable. Or it's it's
1: not that it's not memorable. It's it's just a lot of it's a lot of B roll, you know, of a seahorse oh, yeah. and, and and like it's just it does. There's like too much of an emphasis on birds. Like like there's just. I, I just wasn't particularly uh, immersed by its structure the way I was by its subject matter.
0: Is what yeah, no, that that's fair. Um, was it the best documentary you saw uh, there?
1: Um, you know, no. I, I think the other one, which I will say had uh, the most walkouts of any film I saw <laughs> at the festival, fantastic, was <laughs> was a film called Present Perfect. Which is entirely curated live stream footage from a uh, a Chinese live stream site. Um, it, it's called it's called uh, dot and it's a it's a Chinese live streaming site where uh, where people literally do anything. It's not just you know, it's not Twitch, it's not really YouTube like. It's not viral things. It's it's way more mundane. And it focuses – like it's in some way just a survey of all of these ways that people want to be watched. But it focuses in particular on a few different people. Uh, one is working in a factory, and literally her whole live stream is just her – um, doing this uh, assembly line making underwear, and it's like it's it's not it's not visually fant- uh, fascinating, but it's it's also it's also so interesting that this person would do this, would think that people would want to watch this, and people do absolutely want to watch these people, even as they do incredibly boring things. Uh, there's another, there's another man who continually dances. So that's a little bit more like, you know, the YouTube stars that we expect, but, um, even he has all of these strange vulnerable moments on camera where he, um, where where he just admits that he just wants to be loved. And there are, Bizarre interstitial bits with like uh, ant farms, and it, it's it, it really is an incredible thing. Like it, in a way, it reminded me of something like Camera Person uh, from Christian Johnson, and I, I don't think it's quite to that level, but um, I because I, I just don't think I found quite uh, a, a certain um a certain like fluidity that I did with that Mm -hmm. with camera person. Um, It more reminded me of the road movie. If you've heard of that from last year, actually,
0: I remember hearing about it. Yes.
1: Yeah. Like that was um, dash cam footage in Russia. (laughs) It's all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in a sense there is, it, it is a lot of just watching people, Talk and the strangeness of, of hearing that, and, and, and as you can guess, a lot of people uh, didn't necessarily want to watch that. <laughs> but I, I I truly found it fascinating, and I found the ways that it um it plays in particular with like people with disabilities, and it it, it walks this line between exploitation and um empathy in a, in a way that I think is risky, but, but really ultimately works. Um, even as it's just kind of a, it's, it's really just a scramble of a film, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, how about you, Max? Uh, what are the documentaries that you, uh, checked out?
0: Well, the highlight for me was Patricio Guzman's uh, the Cordillera of dreams. Um, I, I, go in with the uh, I'm coming in with a major caveat I have not seen his other films and I understand that uh, this one is aided by uh, knowing the Pearl Button and Nostalgia for Light in particular but um, I was still pretty um, uh, pretty engaged by it Um, it's a film that specifically deals with uh, the Cordillera this uh, Chilean uh, I think it's a mountain range uh, that. Is both kind of a point of pride of the area and rather isolating, and it deals with both that feeling and the uh, history of Chilean um, activism, uh, specifically against um, uh, I'm, I'm for whatever but Pinochet. Pinochet. Pinochet's, uh, yeah, okay. Pinochet's uh, regime. Um, sure. And also with Guzman's own feelings of kind of feeling. Uh, unmoored because um chile is his country but he's lived uh overseas for most of his life uh since the uh, uh you know i think since allende uh, went down and uh pinochet came into power um i'm not sure how well he really brings all of these threads together but uh all of these threads are very interesting and uh, the film is uh rather gorgeous to behold and it's Um, It has these uh, both a mix of uh, contemporary um, footage of, uh, you know, people talking about their activism and uh, like far older footage. And, uh, you know, it's just it's a film that I was glad to see, even though I feel like there were certain things I I missed on uh, from not being overtly familiar with Guzman's previous films. So
1: in that sense, it definitely you feel like you maybe needed more research, but research you know beforehand. But it yeah. it still research provides, on my
0: own then. Yes.
1: Yeah, that's you know that's that's always an that's always an interesting thing you know yeah. at, at these you know at especially at international film festivals you run into. You run into so many films, whether you know it's uh, cultural standards or you know uh, the history. You know, we already spoke about Vitalina Varela. Um, you know, it's 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 always interesting that you're not sure how much leeway to give it, and you know, maybe I'm getting a little inside baseball here, but no, I, I still I hear think you there's something fascinating.
0: Uh, there in is that a
1: sensation.
0: And, you know, it's also humbling to, uh, you know, uh, encounter someone who you think is interesting but feel like you're a little bit behind on and uh, gives you a reason to push yourself to see more. So, yeah, you know, all, that's always a good thing.
1: Yeah, I, I know you didn't like it very much, but uh... – was The Kingmaker an experience like that for you, or was oh, that more?
0: No, uh, The Kingmaker is uh, a huge letdown. For those who don't know, it's from um, director Lauren Greenfield, who previously made a big splash with uh, her film The Queen of Versailles, which I liked very much. I didn't see the one she did in between um, Generation, Generation Wealth. Wealth. Yeah. I think you saw that.
1: No, I I have not seen that one. I I definitely heard things about it that kept me away, though, to be honest.
0: (laughs) Yes. Okay. that (laughs) I think we might have talked about that. Then I know I've talked to several people who were like, woof, I uh, don't know where the filmmaker who made Queen of Versailles went. And uh, my reaction to the Kingmaker is, woof, I don't know where the filmmaker who uh, made King of Versailles went. Um, Look, it's. Uh, for those who don't know, it's about the career of Imelda Marcos, who was the former first lady of the Philippine, uh Philippines rather, um, whose husband uh, became this uh, well, this uh, dictatorial uh, figure, and it covers both her past and her pr- uh, present in, in the 2016 election, trying to get her son. Uh, to the uh, vice presidential position in the election that uh, instead brought uh, Rodrigo Duterte into power. Um, it's It gets great access to uh, Marcos and a lot of the people around her, but I'm not sure that it really probes very deeply. I mean, the, the great thing about the Queen of Versailles is that it deals with people who seem just completely... Um, incapable of stopping themselves and completely unable to like realize when they look and sound absurd, um, when they've got this obscene wealth and are still digging their own holes. Um, the Kingmaker, I I don't know. I, I, it feels like someone who's still kind of managing things a little close to the chest. And while the film certainly does get into the, uh, you know, grim memory of her, uh, husband's reign, uh, one of the more interesting, uh, Tributaries it goes down is uh, dealing with this zoo that uh, was constructed essentially entirely for the Marcos family's ego that uh, pushed poor people out of their homes and uh, since then has gone to waste and all the animals are in terrible condition. Um, it, Yikes! <laughs> that I, yes, no, that is probably the uh, the section that best gets kind of encapsulates the harm, um, and the like needless, um, you know, the needless extravagance of the, uh, of the family. But I think on the whole the film jumps around a little too much and eventually becomes just a little bit too much of a, a wiki doc about uh Philippine political history. And then, I mean, eventually a fly on the wall, uh, depiction of, of an election, but you know, it, it just seems a little too unfocused and, um, know uh, shallow to really draw a lot of blood in regards to the access
1: do you get a sense that uh, she pulled some punches in in order to keep that access
0: it's hard to say um, it, it's possible it's also just possible that she didn't ask the right questions um, you know it, it's I, I'm, I'm never quite sh- uh, sure and uh, don't like to just yes, exactly. Sure. Yeah, exactly. What went wrong? But um, whatever it is, I, I think the film is a big blown opportunity. Oh, that's too bad. I, how was The Hypnotist then? The Hypnotist um, is another documentary that I was curious about just because of the log line. It's a, uh, a Finnish film about a uh, famous uh, hypnotist, Oliver Hawk, who was put on trial um for, uh, essentially for practicing medicine without a license and who it, uh, the film draws parallels between him and, um, another, uh, kind of autocratic leader, um, who was president of, of Finland for, I think somewhere around a 20 year stretch. Um, and I don't think it draws really that, uh, line very clearly. I, I think less clearly than, um, the Cordillera of Dreams I mentioned that where I wasn't quite sure how everything fit together, but I was um, at least convinced that the director knew what he was trying to say and was uh, you know, saying it all rather uh, elegantly. This, I don't think, manages that. It's 70 minutes and it never really, I think, manages to uh, get above the huh, – isn't that odd? Um, oh, okay. Yeah, it also it blends reality and fiction in a way that I don't think necessarily makes it more interesting. I think it's trying to pull off something similar to what did you see uh, Bart Layton's The Imposter? I did, yes. I think it's trying to on a not quite as grand a scale. I think it's trying to do something similar, like uh, similar to that, with with regards to misdirection and. Um, you anyway, know I, I was never particularly engaged with said misdirections, so that's uh, kind of a you know, kind of a neither here nor there uh, thing for it. Like, it doesn't matter whether you're doing this. Uh, uh, yeah, no it, it's just it's very slight and I don't think it really manages to pull um, uh, whatever message it's trying to get at uh, out.
1: Well, I, I I had a few like that. I, I mean, moving on from uh, the docs, the one, you know, I I literally picked this one based on the title, and it's called "Jesus Shows You the Way to the Highway," and you know, you hear that title, <laughs> and and you're you're saying I, I'm going to see that, whatever it is, and the whatever it is is a, a pretty unsuccessful hybrid of of stop motion uh kung fu films, uh VR or like retro futuristic uh tech thrillers. Um it, it sounds cool as hell, <laughs> it really does. But it, it it just kind of is is a lot of randomness thrown at the wall. Uh and, and it doesn't really ever find um uh coherence for me. I I, I think I, I think it's interesting. You know, as, as it plays on. Um, yeah. So Jesus shows you the way to the highway. Uh, the logline is: CIA agents Palmer and Gagano are tasked with the mission of destroying a computer virus. A computer virus called the Soviet Union. They enter the system using VR, but the mission turns into a trap. So it starts as this interesting kind of uh, conspiracy thriller, but very quickly it just start of it starts kind of becoming non sequitur after non sequitur before it just kind of ends and just kind of this uh, uh, it just kind of limps to the finish line. Honestly, so I, I wish I liked this one more. And there's some really strange bits in it. It's it's from uh, M- Miguel Lonzo and I, I think I'll probably keep him as a name to keep on my radar just because this is so strange that I'd, I'd be curious what he does next. But um, I really, this film really didn't work for me. And I, even at like 83 minutes, I was pretty uh, antsy. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's how that one goes. And the other one that I am so conflicted on is uh, Shannon Murphy's Breakout
0: Baby Teeth. Um, have you heard of this one at all, Max? Uh, I know you've mentioned it, but I don't know very much about it.
1: Yeah, it's it's an Australian film about a um, – About a young girl played by Eliza Scanlon, who it became such a breakout that uh, she's also actually cast in uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Woman uh, adaptation that's coming out soon. She's one of the Little Women. Um, And uh, it it is about, you know, I want to be careful how I describe this because the trailer that's out there is immensely misleading, what it's actually about.
0: (laughs) Fantastic.
1: (laughs) It it appears from the trailer to be a meet-cute with a 'er ne'er-do-well played by uh, Toby Wallace. Uh, And it seems like this is just a romance that's just horribly misguided. But it's not really about that. It's more about coping with the possibility that time is is short and that you have to live every moment. And oh god, I'm so close to YOLO right now. But um, <laughs> Ben Mendelson and S.E. Davis are the the mother and father, and they're they're excellent. They have such a such a sense of um, desperation. To them, and you know, Ben Mendelsohn has played desperation, but it's it's rarely this like quiet and controlled. And this family is just uh, in a tailspin, but it's a tailspin where from the outside everything looks fine. And um, I don't say want to say that much more about the plot, but what I'll say is the humor really didn't work for me. Um, it, it's kind of a Edgy, oddball quality. It's not really quirky because it's it's a lot of gallows humor. It reminded me of I don't know if you've seen the show. It reminds me of a less successful end of the fucking world. Did you ever see that, Max? No, no, never saw it. It's it's a it's a pretty good uh, British series that kind of uh, gained some acclaim um, here and that i mean that show is about like literally the premise is a uh a boy starts following a girl because he wants to murder her so that's their <laughs> codependent relationship so that gives you a sense of what their relationship is like and there is kind of a a similarly dangerous quality to to this and a uh kind of affability self-destructiveness, but the humor didn't really work for me. But I have to say my opinion on this movie changed about like a dozen times throughout the runtime. And I was surprised that the emotional moments like felt like real gut punches by the end. I I think this has a lot of first film bloat. Shannon Murphy's done a number, a number of TV shows, but this is her first film. And at uh, at two hours, it's like, it's 20 to 25 minutes too long. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I totally get why some people, you know, called this the breakout of, I, I believe it was Sundance. And it's, it's not, it's not the dime a dozen indie film that we get. I just, I just think it's kind of a mess. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's. It's interesting, and some people are thinking that it could potentially get some awards attention um, this year, which it wouldn't be totally out of the realm of possibility even though this movie feels way too weird and, like,
0: depressed. <laughs> to Wait, what what awards attention is it being talked up uh, for?
1: Performances. Performances are, are quite good throughout. Uh, Eliza huh. Scanlon. Ben Mendelson, Nessie
0: Davis, okay. they're all really
1: good. Toby Wallace, who I'm almost sure I know from something. Okay, never mind. He's in a lot of Australian films. But uh Yeah, it's 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 a strange film. Um and I seem to be in the uh the minority on, on this one for sure. But um I don't know. Check it out if you want. <laughs>
0: I'm definitely curious about it. If nothing else, it sounds um, singular.
1: It is. At at times it recalls things, but it is – it's definitely – it's definitely weirder than I expected. I I mean – all right, Max, we got to talk about it. Tell me about the Painted Bird.
0: (laughs) Oh, the most cheerful thing I saw. Um, Yes. uh, Okay, so the Painted Bird is – almost three hour film uh it's a check uh from director Václav marhul who did two previous films that didn't really get a lot of attention as far as i can tell there was a uh sorry smart philip and Tobruk, but um this is his first in over a decade uh, his last was in 2008 and it's based on the novel of the same name that is both acclaimed and kind of infamous um it's about this young Jewish boy um, who goes through a series of um, encounters um, during World War II uh, with different guardians or uh, just other adults that he encounters, all of whom are terrible to him uh, to varying degrees. Um, some, some of it is just kind of a banal um, cruelty, and some of it is... Uh, Graphic and horrifying. Um, It is very skillfully made. Um, It at many points seems to be trying to deliberately recall um, a lot of like great uh, European uh, films of of you know the say the sixties through the eighties. Like people have uh, mentioned, "Come and See" um, and uh, Ivan's Childhood. Um, It is. Yeah, the thing about it is that while I was very impressed by it, like by the style, by the kind of gorgeous choreography of the shots of the um, just spectacular black and white um, uh, 35 millimeter photography, it's just um, very laborious. Like it is very self-serious in its presentation and in just the litany of miseries visited upon this kid <laughs> and everyone he encounters, like it just gets to a point where like you can kind of feel the work, um, that's being done to, to horrify you. I can't remember who it was, but someone, um, described it like, as like if the, the chaos reigns Fox, um, uh, directed a film, uh, from, the, from, uh, I think it was Matt, Matt Cipolla. Um, it, it's just – I just felt a film that was straining to be a great film, like a capital G great film in a way that sure. got in the way of it really affecting me in any way. Um, and I ultimately – like I, my exact words were, it yearns and strains to be a great film in a way that made me feel unclean. <laughs> and bizarrely, I didn't hate it. Like, I sort of respect the talent um, on display there, but I could sort I sat there feeling both I can see why many people love this and I can see why many people despise this just beyond it being kind of hard to take.
1: do you think it has anything to say
0: <laughs> um not especially i I think it you know its view of uh, it's a child's eye view of war and like the humanity's basic basist instincts are not necessarily new and um you know, the kid is the, the the kid that they cast is fairly expressive, but he's primarily an avatar of human suffering as conceived. So, uh, okay. you know, I, I, I did not, I've not read the book, which, um, I've mentioned some people really love and find rather affecting. And some people find just the number of things that this kid goes through just to be a lot to take. And it's worth bringing up that, um, the book was presented at least at some point by its author, who is also the author of being there, uh, which was turned into the, uh, how Ashby movie wait, Peter Sellers.
1: Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, hand, I'm, I'm, I'll, let me bring up his name uh, Sure. real quick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Jersey, Kass- uh, Jersey Kaczynski, Polish American novelist. Um, yeah, his two biggest known things are the Painted Bird and being there. Um, huh. Also, he has a, uh, an, a he sometimes acted. He has a brief appearance in oh no, a supporting character in Warren Beatty's Reds. Uh, OK. Um, anyway, right. <laughs> so uh, it, the the book was presented at one point as being uh, a memoir. Uh, and it was later found that uh, it was not it was based on a handful of different accounts and that he didn't really give credit to the people um, he spoke to. There were also like some uh, – there, there, there's some talk that at least some of it was uh, drawn from Roman Polanski's experiences rather than Kaczynski's own because it turns out he actually re, uh, lived with a very kind family uh, uh, you know, that protected him uh, during the Holocaust, which, you know, great, but kind of – gets in the way of the story you're telling here uh, when it's presented as a memoir anyway Wait
1: that's okay those
0: I, I'm kind of speechless those are
1: some truly bizarre little factoids that you just mentioned
0: I okay um, yeah there's also um, <laughs> there's also some talk that Kaczynski may not have written the novel himself but I'm not I'm, I don't know how much I want to get into that. Controversy because I don't know how much I personally know about it.
1: So it's like some some James Frey shit, just a little bit. It's just a very
0: <laughs> yeah strange case where like there's nothing that happens in the film that is beyond belief, but there's so much that happens in the film to this this kid, and after a certain point, it does start to feel like it's straining to upset, um, and yeah. that is you know equal to greatness. Like it's not like. It's not like it's an edgelord film or anything, but it is okay. you know rather self serious um, in you know its presentation of misery. Um, also with a very bizarre cast. Um, I we we were talking about it and um, but before either of us saw it and uh, you weren't able to catch it. But the no. thing that sold me on I had to see this is that the cast includes Stellan Skarsgård, <laughs> Harvey Keitel, Barry Pepper, Udo Kier, and Julian Sands all in as various people that the kid meets along the way. Um, and they're also all dubbed, uh, into a kind of non-specific Slavic language. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, uh, Marhul has said that it's because he didn't want to cast any specific, uh, nationality as being, uh, debased or re- solely responsible. Um, I actually think that choice works. And I think bizarrely the choice to cast all of these actors works, even if it is firstly a little jarring to see Udo Kieran hear a voice that probably isn't him coming out and then to see Harvey Keitel and hear a voice that is definitely not Harvey Keitel uh, coming out. Um, I don't know. they' they see they fit in the milieu uh, better than one might expect. Um, so it, and I think specifically for kaitel, um it kind of plays into. His, he plays a priest who is um, seemingly the only person who has ever been kind to this kid in his life. Uh, so, of course, something is going to go terribly wrong. Um, oh, my. <laughs> not, not exactly what you think, but um, it, it kind of plays with Keitel's history of playing characters who are caught in the middle of a, a certain moral decision and you know the difficulty that they sometimes have making the right one, sometimes not even knowing that they're making the wrong one. Um, it plays into that. Well, um, just wish I found a lot of the film around, uh, these appearances, uh, more, I don't know, more rewarding. Sure. I, I, and I, I
1: have to ask, is he actually dabbing? Does he dab in the movie? No, I,
0: (laughs) I have no idea of what, for those who are puzzled by, uh, Michael's question about, uh, is there dabbing in the Holocaust movie? (laughs) I think that should be the episode title. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, the header image on uh, the Painted Birds letterbox page and an image that's been going around a bit is of the main kid dabbing. I, it has to just be an onset photo because I swear I do not remember that image. <laughs> I think I would have. Uh. this incongruous thing in the middle of this just soul-churning film, uh, <laughs> three-hour – like parade of of, of pain.
1: And uh, so th- this this next one I want to ask about is probably a little less controversial, but is it was still got a lot of festival talk. Uh, it, it's from kind of a uh, a usual suspect of the fest- festival circuit, uh, Quentin Depew. Uh, who previously did Rubber and Reality and a bunch of films that people either love or extremely hate.
0: <laughs> so how was Deerskin, Max? Well, I think it depends on, on if you're asking me, as is it a movie I enjoyed or is it a Quentin depew film I tolerated? Um, <laughs> because... I, I, respect to anyone who finds something in his films. I, I saw rubber, I saw part of wrong and kind of decided this guy has nothing that isn't going to infuriate me. Um, just, I, I, I find everything about him self-conscious and, um, I don't know, just a kind of Dadaism that I, I find not even terribly confrontational, just, I, I don't know. Uh, he's he's always struck me as very shallow. Deer skin is more tolerable. Um, I think it helps that uh, it has Jean Dujardin as the lead. I should probably get into what the film is actually about. So um, Jean Dujardin of the Artist fame plays a man who wants to own a designer deer skin jacket, um, and he gradually becomes. More obsessed with the jacket, more obsessed with the uh, kind of maintaining this aesthetic and more obsessed with other people, possibly detracting from uh, his like what he's doing in a very odd way. I, i'm I'm trying to stay vague, but like essentially, sure. he decides to um, get get at certain people who are potentially making his jacket less unique um it turns into kind of like rubber is trying to be a deconstruction of sorts of a horror movie if you could call it that um <laughs> he said with disdain um deerskin I think is trying to do a similar thing sort of with horror or sort of with crime um I'm not sure I find it terribly interesting on its own I, I still find it very slight I still find it um... It's weirdness uh, to be, I don't know, uh, mostly surface level. Um, But I don't know. It it, it benefits from having Dujardin in the lead role. He is quite funny in it because, um, you know, he's he's he has this ability to play an absurd thing very straight. Like, I'm not a big Hazana Vicious fan, um, but uh, the, the OSS films are, I think, among his more tolerable efforts because mm. it's Duj- Dujardin um, doing the, the almost the Leslie Nielsen thing of playing absurd comedy with a completely straight face. And he's able to do this in Deerskin. Unfortunately, um, you know, I think everyone else around him plays it straight to the point of kind of dullness. And I don't know. The, the, the film itself is, I don't know, short <laughs> is, is is the kind way to put it. Um, it's very short.
1: Sure. How is uh, Adele Hainel, who, who's
0: been uh, – she's been a highlight in a, in a lot of things these days. It did, didn't really make an impression on me, um, <laughs> and I think it's mostly how she's being directed. Okay. Uh, she's, I, she's, I think, asked to play it almost a little too plain.
1: Okay, and – I think there was a genre film that you did like more, which is one I've heard a decent amount in uh, the midnight section at TIFF, which is uh, the Vast of Night.
0: Yes. uh, I did like Vast of Night with uh, Reservations. So it's a directorial debut by Andrew Patterson. um, And it's set in the 50s uh, in the small town. uh, And the two central characters are both – in various ways, obsessed with the radio and uh, how people communicate. One is this kind of teen broadcaster um, talking about the big basketball. Yeah, I think it's the big basketball game. And uh, the other is a, is working as a switchboard operator. And they notice some strange phenomena uh, happening uh, with the radio waves that, they try to kind of suss out exactly what's going on and communicate with um, the public at large um, as it becomes increasingly clear that it's, uh, you know, it has, you know, it's something not of this earth. Mm. And it's very relaxed. Like, I don't know, it, 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 it's very tuned to kind of small town rhythms and um, how everything is rather Laid back until, uh, you know, the biggest thing ever is happening. So is it
1: (laughs) Amblin-esque?
0: I feel like it is, I don't know, maybe trying to get at that, but it also uh, very self-consciously, a little too self-consciously patterns itself after, like, The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits. Um, Because there's this framing device involving television that I don't think is particularly successful um, it mostly just feels like a throwback for throwback safe for uh, self-reflexivity for self-reflexivity's sake and if there's a qualm i have about the film is that it does feel a little too much like an extended twilight zone episode where it just kind of it, it has an ending that probably would have worked great on on television and in this case is just a little too um, cute yeah cute and a little too pat um, but, okay. you know, the, the actual unfolding of, of, of this is, uh, you know, rather fascinating. Um, like, it, you'll never see – well, I, I don't want to say you'll never see, but, you know, it's a film that makes kind of running across town to get a, a bit of information to another person fascinating. Yeah. Um, and the two young actors who I don't think I've seen in very much before, Sierra McCormick and Jake Horowitz, they're both very good.
1: Okay. So does this um, – I, I guess they like, were in Land of the Lost and Ramona and Beezus.
0: Yeah, that that's what she was in, uh, neither of which I think I've, I, I've seen. I'm aware uh, Land of the Lost does not have the best reputation among uh, Will, Will Ferrell's filmography. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's one – I'm curious to see what Patterson does next. I think this is an – yeah, it's an Amazon release, so um, it'll be curious to see if this catches on with people.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, I've, I, I've heard a few people actually, uh, one of our listeners reached out to us saying that, uh, they were, they were pretty impressed with it. And especially as like, uh, twi- specifically Twilight Zone, yes. uh, super fans, they, they liked it, especially in that context. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely curious about that one, uh, And and it's good to know. I mean, if it's an Amazon original, it probably won't play in any theaters, but it will be on Prime.
0: (laughs) I mean, they're Uh, a little bit better of at getting things into theaters than you know Netflix, I suppose. But you know, not everything. That's true.
1: That's true. I'm I'm just uh, messing around, obviously. (laughs) Um, No, no, of course. Um, Yeah, I. I saw – I feel like I should probably transition that I saw my uh, my own genre films um, and from two different countries and two vastly different approaches. So the one um, that I, I think is less known is uh, – it's it's called Just 6.5, and it's uh, from Iranian director Saeed uh, Rastahi. And um, I get the sense that it, it was probably a, uh, a bigger film in in uh, its home country of Iran. Um, I, I looked up Saeed uh, Rastahi, and though my uh, Western ass hasn't heard of his other films, I – I get the sense that he's pretty popular. Um, he, he does actually have uh, Payman Mahdi, who uh, American audiences might know from A Separation and About Ellie, the two of oh, yes, yes. films. And he's also uh, in um, – he's the father in The Night Of, which some people may know him from as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is uh, – uh Payman uh, Mahdi plays uh Samad who is a cop in Iran and they're going after a drug kingpin uh, uh, named uh, Nasser uh, Kakzad and uh, he's played by Navid Mohammed, Mohammed Zada. I really want to mention these people because they're excellent <laughs> but I'm so sorry for butchering them, uh, to any of our Iranian listeners. But, uh, either way, yeah, I was, I was very impressed with this. Um, so it is, it it is essentially a police procedural. Um, but what I like about it is it's about two hours and 15 minutes and more than an hour of it is just devoted to, uh, to, uh, Samad's character, Trying to get uh, Nasser to confess. so it it's really kind of a in-depth look into the Iranian justice system. And from certain angles, it certainly looks pretty sadistic. Like the cops are absolute bullies. And um uh, there were a number of scenes that reminded me of, you know, I have to make a wire reference, obviously. Of the uh, the scene in The Wire where he makes him write a uh, where he makes um a uh, where uh, McNulty makes another character write a letter to the family of a uh, of, of a uh, person who he was responsible for or he wasn't specifically responsible for but who. Died. Uh, I, I don't know if you ta- know the scene I'm talking about at all, Max. Ha- have you seen uh, The Wire? I feel like at some point we've talked about it, but I can't remember. Uh,
0: yes, yes, I have. Um, I, I think I remember the scene, yeah.
1: But either either way, like these cops very much strong-arm uh, Nasser into you know trying to tell who he knows, and it's, it, it's definitely a more high-budget film than I've seen from uh, Iran. Um, Even as limited as my experiences, because I I think I've definitely seen, you know, mostly auteurs like, you know, Kirastami or Penhai or um, Farhadi. But I was just I was really impressed, even as I kind of wondered how much I was projecting my own cultural standards on some of this stuff and how I'm supposed to interpret um, some of the turns in the film. Uh, there's a certain bittersweetness to how the criminal proceedings are depicted. There's definitely a few moments that strain too hard for emotion, like seeing characters like cry you know, in a way that just feels like a little bit too on the nose and, and feeling like they're performing for the camera. But I, again, I, I think when this gets into the nitty gritty of – just the justice system and the bizarre thing like at one point uh, Nasser like convinces another judge that the the cop is um on the take and <laughs> like it, it, the Iranian system is portrayed as such that everyone needs evidence but everyone can also accuse anyone else and it's it's really thrilling to watch uh it might be like a tad bit too long um, and uh, circuitous, but um, again, yeah, I, I really hope um, this gets some kind of release. From uh, I, the last I heard, I, I think it's still shopping for a distributor. Uh,
0: but I—that yeah, was I what think, I was going to ask.
1: Yeah, it's but it's. Um, it's, it's quite good uh and it it's really good to see uh payment Mahdi again because i I mean I I really adore about Ellie and uh, a separation and it's it's nice to see him in a different register in you know barking orders at cops and stuff so yeah, he's a great so actor. oh yeah no he's he's excellent and and so is uh Navid who plays uh nasser like he's got a great um i, I he's very convincing. In kind of his realization of how much trouble he's in um, and, and watching him kind of go through those without it feeling like uh, like machinations is just, uh, again, very mesmerizing to watch. And the, the other film is um, the Chinese film uh, The Wild Goose Lake. Which is from uh, Yanan Dao, who did uh, thin, thin ice, thick coal. Uh, That's not what it is. Black, black, black coal, thin coal. ice. Yes, thank you, Max. <laughs> black coal, thin ice. And Wild Goose Lake is, in every respect, to the word an upgrade. I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't wild about black coal, thin ice, though. I, I appreciated its deliberate pace, um, but Wild Goose Lake is a. Uh, it's very much a um it's very much a look at the chinese underworld through this um through this main character who accidentally kills a cop and then is on the run and uh that leads to a manhunt for him where every cop across the city and plenty of his former uh compatriots are now after him for a bounty and um, it, it very much has the texture of a noir in the sense that it's um, it, it's very elliptical a, a lot of it is fascinating in in how much um, happens in making something not happen <laughs> like it's a very simple plan that he's trying to do. Uh, that he's early on, he decides he's going to turn himself in, and that is so much more difficult <laughs> than you would imagine. Um, it, it's really a uh, a gorgeous film. I, I, I mean, Black Cold Thin Ice was was absolutely a meticulous film, but this one is far more colorful. It's uh, it, it it has a rhythm that's. Um, that's a far more thriller like it, it's really just kind of a, a real grimy, uh, grimy, dark comedy. And uh, I was really impressed with the g- graphic violence. Like there's a great scene with the motorcycle. That's probably the best scene with the motorcycle since uh, the counselor and uh, the rhythm more than a little bit. um Reminded me of uh, the branded to kill Tokyo drifter filmmaker. Yeah, it it, like there's so much that happens in this movie. But again, I love how the the main relationship just remains like grounded among all of this chaos. It's really an interesting it's really an interesting film. And I'm not surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if this was. A breakout from him. It's definitely a nasty film, Um, and there's there's a few character choices, especially in the third act, that I'm not sure are totally necessary um, in in kind of bringing across the misery of this world.
0: But um, it's really uh, a potent film. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious to catch up with it. I, um, through a series of unfortunate circumstances, was not able to attend a screening. I had a ticket for, uh, not worth getting into. But um, yeah, though with with respect, uh, the best motorcycle scene since the Consular is in Gemini Man.
1: This is true. Okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you a fellow Gemini Man uh, supporter,
0: Max? Yes. No, I, I enjoyed oh, Gemini damn. Man greatly.
1: Did, did you see it in 120?
0: Oh, yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> do you want to just talk about Gemini Man for 20 minutes?
0: Because we could totally do that. And we probably shouldn't. <laughs> I don't, I don't, we probably shouldn't. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, I got a couple more films I got to get to. Um, um, I guess I'll just mention uh, two other things I, I yeah, uh, really liked. Um, the first is Ghost Tropic, which is a Belgian film by uh, Bas Devos who is a filmmaker I am not terribly familiar with. He previously made a film called The Violet, and that was in 2014. Um, This film follows this this older uh, Muslim woman living in Belgium who falls asleep on the last subway train and uh, wakes up at the end of the line, and she has to make her way home on foot. And on the way, she sees, you know, just a number of... Odd or um, dreamlike things. Um, it, I, actually, that sounds makes it sound more surrealist than it is. It's just um, it's a very quiet and uh, it's another very slow film that plays very with, with light in a very interesting way, and that ultimately seems to uh, be interested in. You know the, this person's overall curiosity uh, for everything that's going on around her, and the Um I don't know. It, it, it's mostly a film. I, I it's another one where I was largely swept up in just the experience of it, of of spending time with this this character in such a uh, uh, in a in a director who I would light in a really interesting way.
1: So is it a so it's, so it's really a character piece more than a. A mood piece or, or how?
0: I think mood piece would honestly be the better way to describe it. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Sorry, I don't think I, I described it as as well as I, I could have.
1: I, I, I definitely got uh, Costa vibes when you were describing it uh, a, a little bit. I, I mean, in the sense of that, you know, surrealism that's still grounded. So so Yes.
0: Yeah. I, I think that would actually be a, a way to, to put it. Someone else uh, just – compared it, um, in the way it observes behavior to Ackerman. And there's a little bit of that mm. there as well. Oh, interesting. So is
1: it, uh, is it more in the vein of slow cinema then
0: that? Yeah. It, it's, I mean, it's only 85 minutes long and it's a very, um, I don't know, pleasant, uh, bit of slow cinema. <laughs>
1: Okay. There's no sense of arduousness or getting
0: on its wavelength then. Not in, not in the way I I felt. I I felt it was a very free flowing, uh, film. Okay. All
1: right. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. And, um, how about (laughs) I was at home, but do you have anything to say
0: about that? Uh, not much beyond, uh, couldn't get on the director's wavelength while I found myself kind of curious, um, about what, uh, she was attempting this is um angela uh i believe is how it's pronounced um who previously did uh marseille and the dream path and who is thought to be one of the more challenging and austere uh german filmmakers of the last uh of the recent crop and uh, i'd say that's an accurate assessment um I'm, I'm kind of put her in the same conversation as Petzold, as far as oh, like current German Petz- filmmakers. I think it's more like they came from a specific school. Um, sure, but they, they they're very different. Petzold is much more accessible, and uh, you know has this relationship to melodrama. Whereas uh, Shanulek, uh there's some bosonian comparison, but it's okay. also just on a very odd, almost deliberately stilted wavelength. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't. I, I wasn't quite able to kind of get a get a grasp on it, but I, I'm certainly curious to see uh, see some of her other films and see if I can make head or tail of them.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't quite get to it, but uh, I, I plan on getting to it probably before the end of the year. But um, yeah, how about uh, a, a, and then you know we haven't gotten to a few of your highlights. I mean, first. Um, uh, one of your highlights, Max, was the 20th Century. Can you tell me about
0: that one? Yes. Uh, 20th <laughs> Century uh, couldn't be more removed from my other favorites, which uh, tended to be a little more austere. Uh, this is – I mean it, it's gained comparisons to uh, Guy Madden, and uh, they are spot on. it um, It's from director Matthew Rankin, who I think has mostly done shorts before this. Yeah, it seems to be so. Uh, and he's working in a very similar kind of uh, experimental wavelength where uh, it's the sets and performances are very deliberately stylized um, to a degree that um, you're either going to find um, delightful or very off-putting. Um, also off-putting is that it... Um, you know, kind of blends this very um, this very heightened aesthetic that borrows from past melodrama and throws in uh, absurdist humor and also gross-out humor. Like there there are more semen jokes mm. in this than I expected. <laughs> okay, there's huh. uh, that's another positive potential episode title. Um, <laughs> it's uh. You know, um, so it's about uh, Toronto politician Mackenzie King, uh, who I believe was a real um, uh, prime minister of, of Canada at one point. Though this is this seemed well, this is a very obviously heavily fictionalized portrait, um, <laughs> as he's trying to get in uh you know get the uh position of prime minister and uh also as he's vying for the attention of a specific woman who uh is in a relationship with a rival of his um and in order to test their mettle uh they have to essentially prove how how canadian they are uh like to (laughs) repress one's emotions like they refer to the uh the flag and their nationalism as the great disappointment um it's uh you know, it, it, it's a very, um, it's a sense of humor that starts out very dry and then gets increasingly more deranged as the film uh, goes on. Okay. Um, like it, uh, it's, it's a film that is simultaneously about the, uh, you know, the draining of idealism and, uh, certain desire like a, a certain class's ability to go more venal and more, um, uh, Repressive than even a bland centrist like the s- central character is willing to go. And it's also, uh, you know, it's all of that. And it's also a uh, film about someone who's turned on by sniffing shoes. Uh,
1: and what else could you ask for?
0: Um... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's what we all want in in uh, film uh, at the end of the day.
1: Uh, speak for yourself, Max. <laughs> <laughs> I the the last one I want to mention is it, it's kind of genre adjacent and it's it's not quite as weird and doesn't have quite as many semen jokes but it is uh, Koji Fukada's uh, A Girl Missing which was a a film at, at Cannes uh, the follow up to Harmonium which I heard a decent amount about and it's about a woman uh, Ichiko who's a a caregiver to, or to this, uh, the Oishos, which is a, um, a family who she gets very close to. She gets, she's taking care of the, the, um, the grandmother, um, who is kind of on her deathbed. And, um, but she's become very close to the mother. Um, and, specifically the two daughters, one who is older and one who is younger. And, uh, the younger daughter gets kidnapped in the first 15 minutes and she's returned. And, uh, we find out that the kidnapper is Ichiko's nephew. (laughs) And, um, She has to decide for a little while whether to hide that information. So some of the family knows that and the other part of the family doesn't. And so the entirety of the film is really about the aftermath of this kidnapping um, like the kidnapping happens completely off screen. It happens with a character we meet once it, there's no real motive. <laughs> so it's, it's unlike most kidnapping <laughs> films you see. Uh, so so then Ichiko, it's just kind of a domino effect, what, what happens to her life, like, you know, her job is now in danger, and there are secrets that come out about the nephew, and uh, there is a – and the daughter kind of has – the older daughter has an infatuation with her. And she's also – there's also dual timelines that aren't revealed until about an hour in that you're seeing dual timelines. <laughs> so there's there's a lot going on with this movie. But I kind of really liked it. I, I don't blame anyone who kind of felt like it was a mess because uh, it, it it's really interesting because it really starts – like it reminded me a lot of uh, – to go back to Farhadi – Uh, uh, for Hardy's, like, uh, the salesman in in particular, like the moral dilemma in that film. And then it becomes, it it kind of twists into something that is far less conflicted about its own, like, moral corruption. (laughs) Like, it becomes a little more sordid. It becomes a little more um, venial Uh, And it it still is all kind of adjacent to genre, but it gets pretty weird. And I can't really stop thinking about that, thinking about it, even though I'm not sure it's a great film. So I I don't know. This was weirdly a highlight for me, even though uh, I think there are a lot of problems with it. (laughs) But it's uh, it's an interesting one. Max, we we kind of went through all of our highlights, so I, I have one more I want to mention, which I don't think really sticks to the landing. It's actually the soonest to come out. Uh, it's called Hala. It comes out in uh, on November 22nd, and it's from director M- Minhal Baig, who is actually a Chicago filmmaker, so obviously I'm just supposed to love it, but... <laughs> Um, it, it actually stars uh, Geraldine Viswanathan, uh, who um, she is actually kind of the breakout from last year's Blockers, and uh, Jack Kilmer as kind of her first love, who is Val Kilmer's son. And um, I, I think I think I remember first seeing him in uh, uh, Palo Alto. I, I'm not I sure where yeah, he's he was pretty weird in that from what I remember. Um, but yeah, Hala is about a Muslim teenager who um, has to deal with a realization that her her family isn't quite as concrete as she thought, and that um, the assumption she had about, uh, how her parents grew up and live, and the traditions that they follow are not nearly as clear cut as she thought. And it's very interesting because it it kind of signposts early on in a way where I was worried, and then it completely avoids those tropes. So it's it, it still ultimately requires one character to make a jump that I just didn't totally believe. But um, it's it's pretty strong, yeah. It's it's not a, a anything great, but I uh, I like this one, and I I'm always glad to see films that you're worried about in the beginning, and then they just subvert what you're expecting. So, uh, and and I just want to say this had the added theater experience of um, there were about uh, ten high school age girls who came for like a class or something like that and just hearing their gasps at every scene, you know, that definitely added to the experience of watching this film. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, those are, those are kind of all the, the films that I had the chance to see. Um, uh, Max, are, are there any last things you wanna mention? Any theater experiences that were memorable?
0: Anything like that? The various walkouts during Vitalina Varella and Fire Will Come. Uh, sure. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I've I've come to really enjoy seeing uh, walkouts during uh, these things. The walkouts during the Painted Bird were also like, you know, prompted oh, yeah. I think a little more by, you know, just the forbidding nature of the thing and how Uh, grotesque much of it is, but for these others where it's really just, it's clear that this thing was asking more patience than they were willing to give, it's always (laughs) fun. Like, the highlight for me was, uh, like, I told you about seeing Monokamana at a festival and watching, like, with each tram car um, a a new succession of walkouts. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing will ever top that, but, uh, you know, it's still uh, an enjoyable second show. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah,
1: uh, uh, listeners to the Film State Show will know that I seem to have the worst luck in history with uh, with theater experiences, but, you know, that's, <laughs> that's beside the point. I, I'm trying to think if I have any uh, final th- thoughts. Um, yeah, this is the second time we've done this podcast now, and, you know, for as long as I'm in Chicago, I'm going to... I'm going to conditionally commit to doing this. Ditto. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, it seemed like a, a really interesting lineup this year. Um, you, if you're in Chicago, you may notice we skipped some of the bigger films, but honestly, some of them are coming out within two months. So it just didn't, Make much sense to see Ford versus Ferrari a month early,
0: (laughs) or yeah, or The Irishman, or you know, uh, Knives Out, or Jojo Rabbit. uh, Though that one, I think I'll end up being like if I see it, it'll be at gunpoint. So, um.
1: (laughs) Uh, Max, do you want to come on our Jojo Rabbit episode?
0: (laughs) Oh my! Um, (sighs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how to – yeah, sorry. Uh, Jojo Rabbit just brought the podcast to a standstill. Um, So I'll just – I'll get ready to end this thing. Uh, So, Max,
0: um, these days, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Max B. O'Connell. That's M-A-X-B-O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L. You can also find my writing uh, sometimes at the film stage, also at uh, RogerEbert.com. Uh, where I tend to write about actors. Yeah,
1: your last one was about uh, the Joker himself, wasn't
0: it? Specifically about Joaquin Phoenix, yes.
1: (laughs) Yes, the Joker. That's what we said. (laughs) Uh, Max, I I said we were going to talk about the Joker, so I I
0: couldn't finish this. I was already on your Joker episode. (laughs) It was a long episode. I think we got everything we needed to say about that one. Oh,
1: man. Joker, Joker, Joker. Uh, Anyways, you can find me on Twitter. (laughs) That's, I know. Uh, You know, I am writing about the Jason Momoa Apple TV series, uh, C. So, um... I'll have to ask you about that. (laughs) Uh, I've definitely started watching that. Um, Yeah, uh, you can see thoughts on that later this week on uh, The Spool. So, Uh, I think that's going to do it for us. Thank you so much for listening and hearing us talk about a lot of movies. I think, I think together Max and I saw something like 30 movies, which is crazy, but, uh, you know, there were only a hundred left that we didn't see, but that's okay. Uh, (laughs) well, we'll go for 60 next year, obviously. Um, so thank you again for listening. <laughs> thank you again for listening and, uh, go watch a movie. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs>